You're listening to World Oil Deep Dive, conversations with energy industry leaders and engineers about the market trends and technologies shaping the oil and gas industry. Now, here's this week's episode. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Welcome back. We're here today at the Center for uh, Technological Innovation at Baker Hughes, and it's a, it's a special month here, actually, because it's the 15th anniversary. And our guest on the show today is Adam Manlandro. Adam, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the, the CTI, as you guys like to call it. Yeah. So CTI stands for, as you mentioned, Center for Technology Innovation. And basically, we built this facility so that we could innovate our technology, just like it says. This is the hub for where our engineering talent sits and focuses on developing these completion tools under the SIM group, so completions, intervention, and measurements. So we have all of our test lab there so we can design, test, and really deliver the best technology for our clients. That's awesome. That's awesome. And so now tell us, Adam, tell us a little bit about what do you do at Baker Hughes? Yeah, so I am the global product line manager for subsurface safety systems. That's uh, part of uh, a larger umbrella under Breaker Hughes. So I'm under the SIM group that we just mentioned. Um, but on top of that, I'm part of what we call OFSE, which is oil field services and equipment. So, you know, that's where I stand. And it, really, my role as global product line manager is to drive the product line forward, find out what the customers want, make sure we're delivering the right products, we're delivering quality products, and look for those next engineering innovations like the product we're going to talk about today that really bring the most value to our clients. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this because it, it, it's quite interesting, right? So, um, you know, what we're going to be talking about uh, are safety valves, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, not just any safety valve, special safety valves in, in your case. So, um, you know, for our listeners who, who really aren't on top of safety valves, explain what a safety valve is and how it works. Yeah, so there's a wide variety of different kinds of safety valves in the market. The most common one is what we call a hydraulically controlled flapper valve. Now, these are operate on a very simple principle. There's a hydraulic control line that goes to the surface so that is connected to what we call an HPU or a hydraulic pressure unit. So when the operator is ready to produce their well, they apply control line pressure at the surface, which then opens the valve and you can flow the well. Now, these are what we call a fail-safe design so that any event that the pressure is lost, whether that's during a routine shut-in or in an ESD event or emergency event, the valve is designed to fail-safe closed. So, you know, simply when they're ready to do that routine shut-in, they remove the control line pressure. There is a power spring inside of the valve that is sized appropriately to handle what we call a hydrostatic head that would be sitting on top of the piston. I like to think of it like if you're doing bench press, right? You need to make sure your arms are strong enough to lift the weight back off of you when it comes down. So your power spring has to be strong enough to lift that pressure that's sitting on top. So, you know, these are kind of like the last line of defense, um, you know, in case of an incident, right? So the way that I like to think of them too is their main focus is to protect the people, the asset and the environment in case of an emergency. Yeah. And, uh, we all know that in our industry, safety is is really important, especially for the people. So this is a this is a critical piece of equipment we're talking about, right? Absolutely, if the safety valve yeah. fails, it's going to be a problem. So Adam, tell us why are safety valves so important beyond the safety part? I guess. Right. So you know, there's been a couple 
if we go back 30 to 50 years, there's been a few fairly known uh, incidents in offshore wells, one being the Santa Barbara oil spill off the coast of California, right. the second being the Piper Alpha disaster in the North Sea. Now, these were some major incidents that resulted in millions of barrels being spilt in California and then 167 lives lost in Piper Alpha. So, you know, I talked about the safety valve's purpose is to protect the people, asset, and the environment. In these particular well scenarios, 30 to 50 years ago, right, these weren't safety valves were not installed. So the industries responded in a number of different ways, one of them being they included a number of best practices, standards, and specifications to really improve offshore safety, because, right, safety valve is for safety. So uh, at the same time, we had some governments come in and mandate uh, a couple different things. And one of the things that came of those mandates was uh, the requirement to have a safety valve in an offshore well. So if you th think about like the Gulf of Mexico, there's uh, the, the the entity known as BESI. Um, so they're kind of the, the governing body for the Gulf, right? So they're requiring safety valves for these offshore wells. Um, and that's ways that, you know, learning from those incidents, trying to do better, uh, this is where safety valves can really come into play um, and and really be that first line of defense. Yep, that's important. And so so tell me then. So can you expand a little uh, on why it's so important to access these stranded deep water reserves? Yeah. So right now we find ourselves in a historically high inflationary environment. Right. We're all seeing it. We're buying our groceries, our gas. Everything is more expensive. So the operators are seeing the same thing. We're seeing the same thing when it comes to whether it's raw material to make our tools or even the finished goods. Everything is going higher. Costs are just at a, at a very high point right now. So at the same time, our client shareholders are demanding capital discipline. So they're trying to get to improved profitability and cash flow, right? So they're trying to, to, to get through this high inflationary environment the best way they can as well. So one way of achieving this is generating more production and more revenue with fewer wells. Uh, another way is to reduce the cost of maintaining the existing wells they already have. Um, and of course, at the same time as Baker Hughes, many of our operators have these emission reduction targets um, to really reduce their carbon footprint. So in, in order to do both of those two things, the, the key thing to think about is maximizing the return on efficiency so that we can deliver energy at a lowest possible cost to both the operator and the environment. Um, this means leveraging existing infrastructure, recovering, uh, increased recovery from our existing wells, and then really just making sure that we're making strategic smart decisions based off of the remaining life of the well. This applies to, you know, both dry tree and subsea applications and oil and gas wells. Finally, for these deep water wells that we're talking about now, they typically produce quite a bit uh, at a large high production rate. Right. somewhere in the range of 10 to 20,000 barrels per day, often sometimes higher. So if these wells are not producing, they have a high impact on the global supply and the customer's bottom line. Um, so until today, there really hasn't been a economical solution for bringing these valves back online. Interested in all things oil and gas? We've got a podcast for you, The Energy Pipeline. Join us each week as we cover the latest trends, transformations, and success stories alongside various key figures from the world's leading energy companies and beyond. Listen to The Energy Pipeline wherever you stream your podcasts or visit cat.com slash energy pipeline.
Yep. And so and so in in this uh, scenario, like where you're, you're talking about, okay, uh, if a valve fails, generally you only have two options, right? What what are those two options? Yeah, so let me let me start with what happens when a safety valve fails, and then we'll get into the two options. So if we if we think about a tubing retrieval safety valve, um, or we like to call them a TRSV, uh, we're good with acronyms, right? So, <laughs> uh, so when these valves fail, because they are designed to be fail closed, like we mentioned earlier, that means that you are no longer producing uh, through that valve. So um, there's a couple times. Sometimes you can get them back open by manipulating your control line pressure or other troubleshooting methods. But if the valve is unresponsive and ultimately it has failed in the closed position, because um, that's the way it's designed, any any issue with the safety valve will cause it to fail closed so they are not producing through an open hole, right? Right. Um, so if, if that flapper is closed, you're not producing and getting any production out of the well. So um, in kind of going into the two options, up until today, the only way to get those wells back online would be what we call a major rig workover. Now, this is, um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that come into play when you talk about major rig workover, but one of the biggest ones that the operators think about is cost. So uh, <laughs> a major rig workover can cost anywhere from 60 to $100 million because what they're doing is they're actually pulling the entire completion string, uh, replacing all of the jewelry and running in a new string. Wow. So, uh, you know, there's, it's a big operation, That's right? a serious project, so, yeah. Exactly. So they're, they're faced with a dilemma, right? They have to look at the, the return on investment and determine, is this a produ- prolific producer? Yes, then it's worth the money to uh, not have the deferred production and go ahead and work it over. If it's maybe later in its life and it's producing a little bit, but not enough that it warrants a $60 million workover job, then often they'll do what we call a, the do nothing scenario. They just leave it closed and kind of wait for energy innovation, uh, technology innovation to come along to really where we are today. Um, you know, at Baker Hughes, we've estimated there's about 150 of these ultra deep water wells out there that are currently shut in due to a failed safety valve. 150 now, of them, just not producing. 150, just wow. not producing. Yeah. And, and that's just our estimates. It, it could be much higher than that. You know, we have line of sight uh, to, to about 150 of them. So our calculations put that this, the production from those 150, right, because deep water are typically pretty prolific producers. They're about a million barrels per day. Now, if you think about the amount of um, oil and you know supply and demand here, that's about 1% of the total global oil demand. Um, you know, Instead of a, a major rig workover, we can do something now new with light well intervention with this REACH wireline retrieval safety valve. So thinking about the two options, right? It's either if it's prolific, they do the workover, they recomplete it, and that's you know the sixty to hundred million dollar price tag. If it's not, they leave it and do nothing. Now, insert valves have been an option in the past for, uh, and currently are for shallow wells. But you know we talked about a second ago the the tubing retrieval valve is fail safe, so it needs to be able to lift that hydrostatic head just like we we're talking about bench pressing. Yeah. The insert valve operates in the same principle. It has to be able to be fail safe in order to do that. The power spring has to lift the head. So the deeper you go in a shallow well, it's it's relatively simple because you know 500 feet, um, it's just a couple hundred psi of hydrostatic head. Now the deeper you go, the larger that pressure goes up, and the stronger your power spring has to be to lift that pressure. So when you there's kind of a trade-off here, right? So right. 
the higher the, the strength of the spring, the more pressure it takes to open it. Um, and often that's where we run into uh, umbilical limitations from pressure, uh, HPE limitations. And up until today, uh, we have not had a, a insert valve solution for these deep water wells. So, so simply put, when we designed and introduced tubing valves to the shallow market, because typically all of our technology starts in the shallow market and we find ways to adapt it to deep water. Right. We introduced the tubing valve and the insert valve at the same time. But uh, for the last 20, 30 years, there hasn't been an insert valve capable of working in these deep water scenarios. Because, because just, just to recap, so I got this straight in my mind. So the deeper you go, the more fluid sitting on top of it, the harder it is to push up. And so when you get into ultra deep, you're talking about what's the difference between like 200 PSI and what, what do you get in ultra deep, you know, as far as yeah. pressures? Yeah, great question. So, I mean, if we think about, so there's two principles when operating a, a traditional insert valve. There's the hydrostatic head that requires the power spring that we talked about that raises your opening pressure. The second is what we call shut-in tubing pressure. So a standard insert valve has to overcome tubing pressure to open. So say you're at 10,000 feet, you could have 5,000 PSI of hydrostatic head that your power spring has to lift. Mm -hmm. So that means you're having a higher opening pressure surface. But at the same time, because of tubing pressure, say it's 10,000 or it's, it, you know, a lot of these ultra deep water in the 15,000 PSI range, that means you're going to have to apply at least 20,000 PSI to be able wow. to open the valve. And most of these um, HPUs are 10K or 15,000 PSI. So we're running into HPU limitations and umbilical limitations just to get that amount of pressure. So that's where kind of what we're talking about today, the REACH wireline retrievable safety valve um, really comes into play. That's interesting. So I'll, I'll have some more questions on that on that later. But uh, so so go into I mean, we started touching on that a little bit already, but um, yeah. expand on the benefits uh, of the reach. So how, how do you overcome that issue about having enough pressure, right, to, right. to be able to open it? Yeah. So um, the reach wireline retrieval safety valve is the latest addition to our reach family. So for the last several years, we've had a reach tubing retrieval safety valve. And the way that there's a couple ways, but one of the ways we're able to reduce the opening pressure at surface is because it's a tubing pressure insensitive design. So oh, basically it means you don't have to overcome that tubing pressure anymore be because of the way that the piston and, and seals are set up. Uh, I won't go into the details because it can get a little bit technical, <laughs> but at the end of the day, we remove the tubing pressure from the scenario. So that allows you to have a much lower opening pressure at surface. Nice. Um, the, the second way is, you know, making sure that the valve is truly fail safe um, is important, right? Because as someone that deals in the safety valve realm every day, something that I don't want is to have another Santa Barbara or Piper Alpha incident again, right? right. So we want to make sure that this valve, when commanded to close, will do so. Um, so we have a, a brilliant technology team um, that came up with a, a few uh, really unique designs, utilizing and piggybacking off of what we've learned from the REACH tubing retrieval safety valve uh, and implementing that into the smaller chassis insert valve. Uh, you know, this is the, the first and only solution uh, on the market to bring these ultra deep water wells back online. Um, so, you know, we launched it at OTC this year. This is the, the first one in, in the market. You know, we talked about the for shallow wells, it's been there for 20, 30 years, but nothing really for these deep waters. A couple of the keys to this valve and really the benefits 
uh, are we were able to use existing subsea infrastructure mm-hmm. and it operates under the same hydraulic control line. So if we think back to what our operators are required to do, um, you know, capital discipline as well as reducing emission targets, this really hits both of them because they're not having to replace the entire tubing string. So that's a lot less money um, as well as their carbon footprint of the work that it takes to do the complete right. workover. Uh, everything is just getting reduced here. So this can be indu- introduced through the tubing string, mm-hmm. uh, the existing tubing string. So we're not having to pull anything via slick line or wire line. Uh, so there's no need to pull the completion. The biggest driver really is just to eliminate that need for a heavy workover um, so that we can help both our clients and, um, you know, the the environment, right? So um, we did do, I'm pretty excited about this product because it is API uh, 14A validated and can be monogrammed. Um, so really it can be run anywhere in the world, including the Gulf of Mexico. Nice. Um, we have launched our four and a half inch size and we're currently developing a five and a half inch size uh, which allows you to have a, a larger through bore for more production and for those really high um, producing five and a half inch wells, as well as up to seven inch wells. Um, wow. We can put this valve in so we can pack it up with a larger packing stack and really be adaptable into many different uh, tubing sizes. One of the other benefits to this technology is it doesn't need to be a Baker Hughes safety valve. Uh, we can install in our competitor safety valves as well. So it, it's really adaptable to many different scenarios. Um, I like to think of it as it really three main benefits that I've kind of touched on, but there's some really cool buzzwords that I like to use when talking about reach <laughs> safety valve, right? So the, the three words are faster, safer, and more economical. You know, it's, it's faster because we're using light well intervention. Um, you know, a heavy major rig workover can take a year to schedule, um, whereas a light well intervention can come within three months for most operators. It's safer because since we're not having to replace the entire completion string, we're reducing the amount of footprint of personnel on the rig. So less people equals more safety from an HSC standpoint, and it's more economical. You know, we talked earlier about uh, 60 to 100 million dollars for heavy rig workover. A light well is a quarter of that. So we're we're saving around 40 million dollars for the operator, as well as limiting those deep water, um, you know, deferred productions. And, and also, because of the economics of it, that segment particularly, this can be applied to uh, less prolific wells, right? Something that they would have just been like, whatever, exactly. you know, we're just, you know, that that's marginal. We, we don't want to worry about it. Uh, it's not that great a production. And because we can't afford the 60 million to get it back open, it's not economic. And now, you know, with having a, you know, a fraction of that price, we can get a lot more online from that, from those 150 wells. Now, have you guys looked at that? Um, like, of those 150 wells, would this be applicable to all of them? I mean, are those, is that your potential client base right now for this particular product? Yeah, so uh, that's a great point, you know, because it really expands on what we would consider prolific and um, as a viable asset to, to kind of work over. Because you're right, if it's, The 150 was based on kind of more prolific wells, but if we expand into that realm, it it grows exponentially, right? Because if you're not having to spend 60 to 100, you can get away for, you know, 20 um, million dollars, that is. You're able to really look at the return on efficiency calculations, look on your ROIs and see, you know, do that economic value calculation and see how long it's going to take to pay back off. Uh, and that really, like you mentioned, it expands our, our reach a little bit, no pun intended. 
<laughs> That's awesome. No, we've been talking about uh, light, uh, light well workovers and rig-based workovers. So, um, you know, huge cost savings, easier to get the, the light well workover rigs out. But can you explain the difference between those two for us? I mean, uh, aside from the time it takes to get the rig out, it, it, there must be some other differences, right? Yeah, so uh, Lightwell is a much more nimble technology, um, not just in the fact that it takes a lot less time to get there, but once it's there, you're able to position a lot easier because um, you're, you're going through the tubing string instead of replacing it. Ah, so you have okay. the ability to move the, move the vessel a lot more uh, easily. So it can kind of make, because, uh, you know, offshore wells are often heave um, right. and make big movements. So the Lightwell Intervention Vessel, being that it's so much more nimble, has a capability to kind of move with the ocean and move with those heaves, um, which really from an HSE perspective as well, keeps everyone a little bit more safer, right? Um, the biggest difference is because you're going through tubing, um, you know, and because it's so much faster and more nimble, we're return on investment. Um, you know, we've done some EBCs or economic value calculations, um, and it really allows you for... ROI is in the 1,600% range um, with that. 1,600%? 1,600%. Wow. Um, wow. And that, you know, that's based off of uh, one case study, right? That was right. a prolific producer in the Gulf. Um, but 1,600% ROI versus the basically the do-nothing scenario where you're leaving it and you're doing nothing. Um, there is, of course, that initial investment that gets you there. Um, but once you get past that hurdle, then you really – that's where deferred production comes back in and starts really making you money uh, at a much more rapid pace. Uh, if we think about kind of the differences between major rig workover and light well intervention, um, historically with major rig workover, right? So you, the first challenge is getting the rig on site, um, which as we mentioned earlier, can take up to a year to schedule. There's not many of these vessels in the Gulf. Uh, for example, we'll, we'll use the Gulf because that's kind of the most um, the busiest sec sector that we work in, right? We're right. also in West Coast Africa, doing a lot of work in Brazil, um, but we'll just use the Gulf, for instance. Uh, it can take a, a year to get one of these major rig workover vessels there. Then you have to pull the entire tubing string completion. <laughs> right. So if you think about that from uh, the carbon footprint we talked about, that's a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. There's a lot of people. Just the vessel itself uh, is really impactful to the environment. Um then you have to replace the entire tubing string or the entire tubing string and the completion string with all new completion jewelry. Um, a lot of these completion tools, once they've been down hole, you don't want to risk any type of corrosion because um, right. as soon as you know you come up to free oxygen, you could get corrosion. So you don't want to rerun any equipment. Um, so that's uh, kind of comes to that capital discipline, right? Because now you're having to spend the capex to replace all of these completion tools. Um, for a deep water well, you don't want to risk rerunning equipment that even, you know, could potentially have uh, an effect on the long-term viability of the products. Um, so after you do that, and then just finally from a operational HSE perspective, um, you know, you're, there's a lot more people like we mentioned, so it's an added operational risk. risk. So now when we bring Lightwell Intervention in, you leave the well as is, you don't change anything. We're using the existing tubing string, the existing safety valve, even the existing control line that's already in place. Um, and we're running this technology through the tubing and it can be scheduled as, as we've seen for most operators in the Gulf, at least uh, within three months. And it's so much safer because you have exponentially less people on board. 
And, and the huge cost savings of not having to replace everything that you pulled up, right? So exactly. that, that's that's fantastic. So so tell us a little bit about how um, the uh, the reach safety valve, how that how that's deployed, right? If you're if you're not pulling everything up, then there's, um, I mean, explain it to us. Yeah, explain yeah, it to me no. because I don't understand how those things actually work. So uh, you know how do, how do they get it in there? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's basically a five step process. Um, to from once your lightwell intervention vessel is there mm-hmm. to the vessel leaving and having a fully functional uh, insert valve. So step one is because this is an insert valve, it utilizes packing stacks to create a control chamber so that you can operate it. So we want to make sure we have good seal bores. So what we'll do is we'll run a plug down and we'll do a pressure test on the seal bores to validate that they are holding pressure right. and they can be good uh, and they're not damaged from say wireline work through the valve or anything like that that could have damaged it, you know, brushes or something. Um, So first step is checking for good seal bores. The second one would be to lock open the existing failed tubing retrieval safety valve. So when I say lock open, um, you know, I mentioned earlier, it's a flapper style valve. So the flapper closes to prevent, uh, you know, hydrocarbons from coming up whole. So we basically want to get the flapper out of the way so that we can put the insert valve in through the middle of it. Um, So there's a couple ways you can do that. You can utilize what we call a, a flapper lock open tool, which deposits a um, Elgiloy spring material, which holds the flapper open. Or um, more recently with the Altus acquisition and during our SIT test, we've actually utilized something called the Altus Precision Stroker tool, which grabs onto the flow tube. We put a no-go sub on this tool. It grabs the flow tube, it shifts it down and then deforms it so that the flow tube is actually holding the flapper up out of the way ah, okay. through yep. full bore access. Uh, so we have good seal bore, step one. We've locked open the safety valve, step two. Now step three would be to establish communication. So I mentioned we're utilizing the existing control line. So we need to find a means uh, or create a means to use that control line pressure to the insert valve that will be installed later. So we do this with a mechanical pipe cutter, which Baker Hughes offer, offers as well. We put a no-go sub on that. So everything we do inside of a tubing retrieval safety valve is based off of a no-go that's in the nipple adapter. So we know all of the specified dimensions of where right. we need to do all of our work throughout the valve. Um, so we put the no-go sub on the MPC. We go in uh, and we cut a communication port um, with that mechanical pipe cutter in the piston bore of the failed tubing retrieval safety valve. So after that, the fourth step would be cleanup, right? Cause you know, we just did some cutting uh, we want to make sure yep. that there's no debris in there that could affect the, the packing stacks of the insert valve we're about to put in. So we do a lot of flushing of the control line, you know, pumping fluid down to make sure that there's nothing inside the valve. Um, but then we also want to make sure there's no metal shavings or debris floating around. So we use something like the Altus Precision Collection Tool, which will go down and, and capture all of that debris. And then finally, now that you have a locked open safety valve, a clean tested safety valve from a seal board perspective, we have communication. Uh, now we can install the REACH wireline retrieval safety valve. It has a lock attached to the top of it so that it will land in that same no-go uh, that we talked about previously. Right. And then once you've landed, you operate it just like you do your traditional tubing retrieval safety valve from surface. Uh, no changes. You're ready to rock and roll. Oh, wow. So, yeah, that's a, that's amazing. And that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of technology. So the real trick like we said, in in any kind of uh, safety valve, especially for the deep water, is is making sure that it can handle the hydrostatic pressure, but also um, 
kind of fit down through a reduced uh, diameter, right? Once you're down there, now you have to have something a little bit smaller than your existing Absolutely. pathway, right? And and still be able to handle the the pressure. So that right. So as part of that's a good that's a good point. So as part of our validation testing, you know, I mentioned it's 14A validated. Uh, we do a lot of testing to test the robustness of the system to make sure it can a handle the pressures, not just hydrostatic, but internal pressures it'll see down hole, but also the flow rates, right? Because some right. of these are, are very fast producing wells. Um, so we gas slam test the safety valve. All of the Baker Hughes safety valves uh, get gas slam tested, but even for this one, you know, an insert valve, we slam tested to make sure that in the event that it's called upon to close, often it could be flowing, right? So it when that flapper gets into the flow, it's going to slam shut really quickly just right. because of the yeah. dynamics of the flow, right? So what we do is we we simulate that and then ensure that after that situation, after that occurrence happens, it still holds pressure like it's supposed to. It wasn't damaged uh, from that really uh, dynamic flow event. Um, so we, we test that pretty uh, pretty aggressively in our validation testing to make sure that uh, when it's called upon to do its job, it does its job, but then it also holds uh, the, the hydrocarbons downhole and protects those things we mentioned earlier, right? The people, the asset, the environment. Exactly, exactly. So now um, you guys got a Spotlight Award at OTC for this technology. And uh, so what's been the reaction so far? Do you guys have, uh, have you deployed it yet? Uh, what's the story there? Yeah, so customers are really excited about this technology. They, they're they open and willing to talk to us about it. They, they want to hear about it. And, you know, they've been waiting for this to come into the market. Uh, I imagine you know, they've, they, they've got these things shut in. Uh, they're ready to produce and, and really help with that capital discipline, right? So customers are very excited. Um, you know, you mentioned the, the OTC Spotlight Award. So not just the customers, but the industry is excited about this technology. Uh, in addition to the OTC Award, we also won the Hearts Meritorious Award for Engineering Innovation this nice. year. Nice. Uh, and then just last month, we were finalists in the Gulf Energy Awards uh, for Best Deepwater Technology. Um, so customers and the industry are excited and ready. Um, we did complete a, a full-scale system integration test um, in one of our test wells early this month for BP. So everything that I just described in the five steps, we did that in our test well. We actually ran a tubing valve downhole. We did all of the five steps to successfully prove out before we get downhole that the technology and the steps required to get the technology downhole will all work. Right. Um, so we did that and the first deployment is scheduled for the Gulf of Mexico uh, later this year in December. And we're really excited to, to get the first one in the ground and you know, focus on what we can learn from that um, and then just continue to get this technology out there. Um, you know, I, I wanna say thank you to DeepStar because um, we've been a, a part of the consortium that's been um, really pushing the development for this. They've been a part of that. And then also to BP, um, you know, they're, they're going to be the ones running the first one uh, in December, as well as being a part of it with us for that full system integration test. Oh, that's important to have good partners like that, right? Absolutely. That, so you can prove to them that it works, and then they're going to be the beneficiaries, of course, of of the the first use of this. But you know, for the magazine, this is the type of technical articles. Once you guys get you know get the installation done, and you can write up a good case study on it, we, we'd love to see that for the magazine for sure. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, Adam, thanks so much for being here with us today. It was fantastic. And, uh, yeah, you just increased my knowledge of, uh, you know, safety valves, retrievable safety valves uh, enormously this morning. So I thank you for that. 
Yeah, no problem, Jim. Thank you so much. Uh, and thanks to World Oil for having us. Thanks for tuning in to our show. Please check out the show notes for the links we discussed in the podcast. We value your opinions. So if you have any questions or comments, kindly email them to us at deepdive at worldoil.com. Additionally, we'd appreciate it if you could rate us on your preferred podcast listening app. Lastly, don't forget to visit worldoil.com for the latest technical articles and news about the oil and gas industry.